You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listeners. If my voice sounds a little hoarse or different in this episode, it's because I'm recovering from strep. I delayed the recording of this episode as long as I could, but if I delay it any longer, I won't complete it according to schedule. But I think my voice is well enough that maybe you won't notice it. One brief warning, I deal with religious subject matter in this episode in a historical context. And if at any time I seem insensitive or dismissive to anyone's religious beliefs, please realize that it's because I'm approaching this subject from a historical viewpoint rather than as an article of faith. According to the biblical narrative, about a year after the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, thought to be around 1200 BCE, God appeared to them at their encampment at the foot of Mount Sinai. The description of his visitation sounds like little more than a thunderstorm to modern readers, but the Israelites believed Moses was called up the mountain to confer with God. After Moses ascended, he returned and explained that no one else was to likewise ascend the mountain in an effort to see God for themselves. He also told them that on the mountain, God had given him a new law, not just the well-known Ten Commandments, but also an entirely new covenant, detailing a social and civil legal code. God eventually allowed some other priests to see him, and afterward, it is said that Moses spent 40 days and nights on the mountain alone with God, during which time he was provided with further detailed instructions for priestly ordinances that the Israelites were to keep, as well as directions for how to design the tabernacle, a portable sanctuary to be constructed as a place of worship. Along with these instructions were detailed designs for a cask to be built of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. This cask or chest was intended to carry the tablets of the law, which would be written by the very finger of God. On its lid, two cherubim were to be carved, facing each other, extending their wings so that the tips of them met above the center of the chest. And it was in this place, between the two cherubim, a place that was called the mercy seat, that God would reside invisible. As the very throne of God, it was too holy an object to be touched by man, so rings were to be crafted on its feet through which poles could be passed so that it could be carried aloft without being touched. 
This object, called the Ark of the Covenant, was considered the most sacred relic of the Israelites, kept in the Holy of Holies, the most secure central chamber of the tabernacle, approached only by priests. Legend of the Ark grew over the ages. In the letter to the Hebrews, it is said that it contained not only the tablets of the law, but also the rod of Aaron, a talisman endowed with the power to perform miracles, as well as a pot of manna, the supernatural substance that fell from the sky to sustain the Israelites during their travels in the desert. But most importantly, it was the very seat of God's power on earth, and as such, it was the symbol of their power as well. They carried it aloft before them as they marched into the promised land. It miraculously made victory possible for their armies on more than one occasion, drying up the River Jordan so that they could cross, and simply by carrying it in a circuit around the walls of the fortified city of Jericho, it made it possible to bring the walls crashing down with just the sound of several trumpets. But as mentioned, this artifact, which carried their invisible god aloft and housed their most sacred relics, was too powerful for a mere mortal to touch. At one point, the Philistines captured the Ark and reveled in the idea that they had stolen the Israelite god, but when plagues of rats and tumors were inflicted on them, they sent the Ark back, and in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles, it is described that one of the drivers of the cart carrying the Ark was struck down simply for laying a hand on it to steady it when the oxen pulling the cart caused it to lurch. Likewise, when the inhabitants of a certain city did not greet the return of the ark enthusiastically enough, some 70 of them were struck dead, though by some interpretations the ark may have laid waste to something more like 50,000 people that day. The Ark of the Covenant has grown in legend to become the most powerful sacred object in history, a talisman of untold power, a symbol that confers legitimacy and a weapon. When King Solomon the Wise constructed his temple, a permanent version of Moses' tabernacle, the Ark was placed in its Holy of Holies and was not officially ever heard of again. In 587 BCE, Solomon's temple was sacked, along with the rest of Jerusalem, by the Babylonians, and there are only rumors and conflicting accounts of what became of it thereafter. This is Historical Blindness. I'm Nathaniel Lloyd. And though I'm sure there are top men working on it, I thought I'd have a look myself into the whereabouts of the Lost Ark. Before the episode, I want to thank my new patrons, Min New, Rebecca Scanlon, Lauren Watson, Ariel Boyer, and Marquis25. I really appreciate all my patrons. And if you haven't yet filled out the short listener questionnaire at surveymonkey.com forward slash r forward slash airwave, then please click on the link in the episode notes. If you pledge on Patreon, you can get ad-free and exclusive episodes. I always release at least one Minnesota month, but I always try to release something exclusive between each episode. For example, after my episode on the Hitler Diaries hoax, 
I released a minisode about similar hoaxes perpetrated on the news media, the Eva Braun diary, two different Mussolini diaries, and the Howard Hughes autobiography. Then after my episode on KGB AIDS disinformation, I released the full interview with expert Dr. Douglas Selvich, which was more than an hour long. Patron feeds also get episodes early, and as mentioned, their episodes are not interrupted by advertisements or Patreon pitches like this one. So visit patreon.com slash historicalblindness and support the show. Or you can support the show by making a one-time donation at historicalblindness.com slash donate or at the PayPal link in the show notes or on Venmo at historicalblindness. Now, on with the episode. Welcome to Historical Blindness. As you can surely tell from the adventure theme I'm using, instead of my typical introduction music this episode, I was inspired to cover this topic by one of my favorite films of all time, the first installment of the Indiana Jones franchise, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I credit these films and the character of Indiana Jones with my lifelong interest in historical mysteries and arcane knowledge. In fact, as the release of the fifth and likely final Indiana Jones film, The Dial of Destiny, approaches, I had the idea to focus in a series of episodes that won't necessarily be contiguous on the MacGuffins and historical mysteries central to the Indiana Jones films. A lot of the episodes of this podcast have already touched on notions from the films, most notably my series on Nazi occultism, but I haven't entirely focused on the mysteries explored in the films, and of course, I had to start with the Ark of the Covenant. In Raiders of the Lost Ark, the stakes are high to find the Ark, as it was believed to be a supernatural weapon that could tip the balance of power, the Nazis are after it, and Indy must keep it from falling into evil hands. Today, the search for the lost Ark of the Covenant likewise carries far greater import than simple archaeological significance. Don't get me wrong, though. If it were ever discovered that the Ark of the Covenant, first of all, was real and not just a fabled legend, and more than that, that it had survived to modern day like the Dead Sea Scrolls, it would be an earth-shaking revelation, academically speaking. Not all scholars agree that the Ark actually existed, or that it existed as described in Exodus, but many do, and its discovery would go a long way toward demonstrating the historicity of certain passages in the Bible, which of course would then be touted by biblical literalists as evidence for the historicity of the entire Bible, even if it were shown not to possess supernatural powers. But more than this, the discovery of the Ark of the Covenant would have massive repercussions for peace in the Middle East. There are those who believe that discovery of the Ark would not only prove the truth of scriptures, but also the existence of God and the validity of Judeo-Christian faiths. Some Orthodox Jews have hoped that its discovery might somehow heal the rift
between Islam and Judaism by somehow proving the political legitimacy of Israel. However, as with most aspects of Middle Eastern conflict, the matter may not be so simple. While the discovery of the Ark in modern times might convince some to set aside their differences or even to convert, more likely it would exacerbate the conflict. One place where the Ark is rumored to have been hidden away is in a secret chamber beneath the Dome of the Rock, an Islamic shrine built atop the Temple Mount in Old Jerusalem, perhaps the most contested holy place in the region or on earth. To both Jews and Muslims, this place is believed to be the site of the creation of the world. To Muslims, it bears further significance as the place from which Muhammad ascended into the heavens on his miraculous night journey. So it is their third holiest site, known to them as the quote-unquote farthest mosque. To Jews, it is the place where God created Adam, where he asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, and where the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple was located, where the ark, the seat of God on earth, was kept. To really delve into this conflict and the significance of this site is beyond the scope of this episode. But what is important to know is that the rebuilding of the Israelite temple on that site has been foretold as a precondition to the end of days, the resurrection of the dead and the last judgment for the Jews, Armageddon and the second coming for Christians. Indeed, there has long been a desire among some Jews, but perhaps even more so among evangelical Christians, to relocate or even to destroy the Dome of the Rock in order to kickstart the end times by rebuilding the temple. Certainly, the prospective discovery that the Ark of the Covenant was real, that it had been recovered and was waiting to be restored to its place on the Temple Mount, would raise the already high temperature of the region to a fever pitch. This scenario would prove the fiery power of the Ark, for it would be like tossing a match into a tinderbox. This assessment of the explosive prospect of the recovery of the Ark of the Covenant is proven by an incident in 1911, when a British expedition intent on digging for the Ark under the Temple Mount nearly resulted in a Middle Eastern crisis. It began with a Finnish scholar named Walter Juvelius, who had convinced himself and others that by deciphering some ancient code in the Bible, he had discovered the location of the long-sought-after gold treasures of Solomon, including the Ark of the Covenant, believed by many to have been hidden away before the arrival of the Babylonians. Juvelius engaged a wealthy English socialite, Montague Parker, to help him bankroll his expedition, and in 1909, still some 40 years before the State of Israel would be created, they traveled to Jerusalem, which at the time was controlled by the Ottomans. Excavation beneath the Noble Sanctuary Mosque on the Temple Mount was forbidden even then by the Sultan in Istanbul, but Juvelius believed that they could begin their dig outside the walls of the old city and penetrate through to the ancient tunnels that would then take them to the treasure they sought. 
It was the largest and most expensive excavation in the history of Jerusalem at the time. And indeed, they did break through into dark subterranean passages that honeycombed the area. What they did not find was any treasure beyond a few pieces of pottery. Finally, desperate to succeed after years of effort, in 1911, they bribed the sheik in charge of the noble sanctuary mosque to send his guards away to a 10-day festival that was then being held outside the city. And they set about digging numerous holes on the raised platform of the mosque and even beneath the Dome of the Rock, the ultimate desecration. On April 12, 1911, the 10th night of their secret dig, they were discovered and word swiftly spread through the city that some Western Christians were despoiling their holy site. Muslims flooded the street, enraged and searching for the offenders, and the Englishmen hopped on the first train out of Jerusalem, back to their yacht in Jaffa. Thousands of demonstrators continued to march the streets of Jerusalem, and Turkish soldiers had to be deployed to quell what looked like impending riots. Around the world, the leaders of Islam condemned the act. It was no exaggeration that they were on the precipice of a global holy war. Eventually, though, the sheikh who had accepted the bribe was arrested, as was the governor of the city, though he had had nothing to do with it. Investigators determined that nothing had actually been looted by the Englishmen, and trouble subsided. However, the expedition's hasty retreat had led to numerous rumors spread in the Western press that Montague Parker and his men had actually made off with the Ark of the Covenant. This was completely false, however, and indeed, Parker even tried to return later that same year to continue his excavation. Because of the scandal, however, he would never be tolerated to set foot in Jerusalem. His expedition, though, would go on to inspire others who dreamed of digging up the temple treasure, and specifically the Ark, in Jerusalem. But they would never have the opportunity to excavate beneath the Dome of the Rock again. For about a month in 1967, during the Six-Day War, the site was wrested from Muslim control, but jurisdiction was ceded back before anyone attempted any organized search for the temple treasure. Once, in 1981, a rabbi broke into a catacomb while constructing a synagogue beyond the Western Wall and organized a secret dig to reach the Holy of Holies. But the news media exposed their excavation and an angry mob put a stop to it, sealing the cavern. Besides these attempts, most other expeditions for the Ark sought the relic outside of Jerusalem, and some even claimed to have found it. Perhaps the most outrageous of these adventurers was Ron Wyatt. This American nurse from Tennessee, a devoted Seventh-day Adventist, belongs among the biblical literalist fraudsters I previously discussed in my episode on the Seekers After Noah's Ark. He first entered the field of quote-unquote biblical archaeology, which is most of the time just amateur archaeology, or often pseudo-archaeology, because he believed that the Darupinar site, a kind of boat-shaped rock formation that I mentioned in that previous episode, was Noah's Ark. 
Starting around 1977, he began organizing various Middle Eastern expeditions designed to recover biblical relics and thereby prove the historicity of the Bible. He had the idea of searching the bottom of the Red Sea for traces of Egyptian chariots, which he would tout as evidence of the scriptural account of the sea having parted for the Israelites and afterwards swallowed the Pharaoh's army. He claims that he discovered the exact place of the crossing and recovered the chariot remains of the army that he sought, but he provided no evidence that the artifacts had actually come from the bottom of the Red Sea, and professional divers have argued that he would not have been physically capable of diving to the depth, he claimed. This is rather typical of Ron Wyatt's adventures. When he provided evidence, it was always suspect and he dismissed valid criticism as being the efforts of Satan to cast doubt on the truth. He claimed to find everything he looked for, and far too easily. He said he had discovered the true locations of Mount Sinai, Sodom and Gomorrah, and even the site of Christ's crucifixion. And here is where his most fantastical claims were made. According to Wyatt, the site of Christ's crucifixion was just outside the old city of Jerusalem's walls, and he further claimed that an ancient earthquake had cracked the hill, an act of God, to allow access to a chamber beneath where the Ark of the Covenant had been hidden. By Ron Wyatt's reckoning, God had opened the earth there to allow Christ's blood to flow down onto the mercy seat of the Ark making official the notion that Christ's death was the ultimate sacrifice and marked the beginning of a new covenant between God and humanity. He further claimed to possess evidence of the find, including video and photographs and even samples of Christ's blood which remained upon the ark and which through DNA analysis showed an absence of a Y chromosome, proving he had been born of a virgin. But with Wyatt, there was always an excuse. The Israeli government conspired, he claimed, to cover up the discovery, fearful that it would result in a mass conversion to Christianity. According to him, Israelis had been killing anyone who got close to discovering the site, and it was for this convenient reason that he could not release his evidence. But one day, he promised, one day he would, reveal all to the world. Ron Wyatt passed away in 1999, and no such evidence has ever been shared. Now for a brief intermission. What really happened on the unsinkable Titanic? What made the 1904 St. Louis Marathon the strangest event in Olympic history? Whatever became of missing boy Bobby Dunbar? And who was the child who returned in his place? If these questions interest you, check out the History Uncovered podcast, brought to you by the digital publisher of All That's Interesting. History Uncovered explores the strange and obscure parts of history that you definitely didn't learn about in school. Hosted by the writers and editors of All That's Interesting, the show covers a wide variety of topics, ranging from the forgotten media spectacle of cave explorer Floyd Collins' death to the disappearance and possible cannibalization of Michael Rockefeller 
to the true story that inspired The Exorcist. With more than 100 episodes, you're bound to find that they've covered a topic that's especially interesting to you. And each month, they produce a special History Happy Hour episode, examining recent news in the fields of world history and archaeology, and commemorating important historical anniversaries. Come explore the uncharted corners of the natural world and the world past by listening to History Uncovered, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there. This important message is for all of my listeners. If you've been listening to the podcast, you know I've struggled a bit to find a wide audience, and I really want to help more listeners find the show. Additionally, I want to get to know you listeners who are already on board a bit better, so that hopefully I can improve the listening experience for you. For the next two months, I'm conducting a survey to get to know you and your interests and to gauge what you think of the podcast. It would help me out immensely if all of you can support the show by taking a short questionnaire at surveymonkey.com forward slash r forward slash airwave. You just choose historical blindness from the list of podcasts at the top of the page and answer the questions. It'll only take a few minutes and your feedback will help me better tailor the show and its sponsors to your interests. And there's one spot where you can tell me whatever you want to tell me. And as an added incentive to help me out with this, you'll be entered to win a $500 Amazon gift card when you complete the survey. Again, this is for all listeners. Go to surveymonkey.com forward slash r forward slash airwave or click on the link in the episode notes. Thanks for being an active listener of the podcast. Now, back to the show. In 1946, Bedouin shepherds made the discovery of the century when they found numerous scroll fragments in the Qumran caves of the Judean desert. This very discovery lends some hope to the otherwise far-fetched notion that an artifact like the Ark of the Covenant might be rediscovered today. In 1952, an archaeologist further searching the Qumran caves discovered a scroll unlike the others in that it had been inscribed on a copper sheet. This quote-unquote copper scroll, as it has been called, was not a work of literature or a religious manuscript, but rather a list detailing 63 locations at which gold and silver treasure had been hidden. Some scholars have suggested the scroll was a hoax, but as it has been dated to the first century CE, it would have had to have been a very ancient hoax, which doesn't hold up to logical scrutiny. Some believe the Copper Scroll to be a list of treasures hidden by those at Qumran, others that it may be a key to the location of the treasure of the Second Temple, hidden away before the Roman invasion. But some, including John Allegro, the first scholar to study the Copper Scroll, believed it could refer to the treasure of the First Temple, taken out of the temple by priests to avoid it falling into Babylonian hands. Allegro pointed to one passage that indicates a silver chest was buried under a hill, quote, in the desolations of the Valley of Akor, 
a location northwest of Jericho, and thus far outside of Jerusalem, and that this chest contained, quote, all the gold and silver of the great tabernacle and all its treasures, end quote. All the treasures of the great tabernacle certainly would include the ark. But it is unclear how the ark, which itself is supposed to be four feet long and two and a half feet wide and tall, would fit within another chest and still have room for further treasures. It would have to be quite a large silver chest indeed. Whether or not the simple question of how the ark might fit within a silver chest puzzled him, he mounted a series of excavations to search for the temple treasure in the West Bank and Jordan, following clues from the Copper Scroll. He never found a thing. Allegro would eventually go on to discredit himself in the eyes of many with some rather bizarre later work in which he claimed that Jesus had been a fictional character dreamed up by early Christians who were really just a sex cult that consumed a lot of psychedelic mushrooms. But Allegro's work on the Copper Scroll would inspire others to search for the Ark in caves and other locations outside of Jerusalem. One Vendel Jones, an American archaeologist who had moved to Israel in the 1960s, claimed to have used the directions in the Copper Scroll to find some of the hidden treasures it told of, including a small jug of the oil used to anoint the kings of Israel, called the Balm of Gilead. Vindal Jones believed that the Copper Scroll was one key to the mystery of the Ark, but that another could be found in the Book of Second Maccabees, a deuterocanonical book, meaning it is considered canon by Catholics and certain Eastern churches, but is disregarded as apocryphal by others, in this case both by Jews and Protestants. In 2 Maccabees, it is stated that the prophet Jeremiah, having been warned about the impending Babylonian invasion, absconded with the ark and hid it in a cave on Mount Nebo, well east of Jerusalem, past the Dead Sea, and that its location would remain unknown until the gathering of Israel. This foretold event, also called the ingathering of the exiles, is an eschatological milestone prophesied as a precursor to the reign of the Messiah. And so Vindal Jones, who made some efforts to find the Ark, believed that when he discovered it, he would be ushering in the end of days. Vindal Jones claimed that he may have been the inspiration for the character of Indiana Jones asserting that someone who had joined him on his digs wrote a screenplay about an archaeologist named Andy Jones based on him, and that the makers of Raiders of the Lost Ark had cribbed ideas from that script. This claim has been vigorously disputed, however, and Vindal Jones's involvement with Kabbalist mystics and fundamentalist rabbis seeking to reestablish a national rabbinical court in Israel along with his inflated sense of himself as being the person who will usher in the end times by discovering the Ark, rather undermine his credibility as an archaeologist. For example, he announced in 2005 that he would bring forth the Ark on the anniversary of the temple's destruction in August of that year, but then didn't, claiming much like Ron Wyatt and probably just to save face 
that he had been prevented by the government, though not because of a conspiracy, but rather because of some bureaucratic constraints. The notion that the Ark was hidden away in a cave on Mount Nebo, where Moses is said to have died, was not a new one in the 1970s and 80s. Back in the 1920s, a Californian named Antonia Frederick Futterer followed the verse from 2nd Maccabees to Mount Nebo and claimed that he found a cavern entrance closed with stone and engraved with some sort of ancient glyph which he claimed his Hebrew translator interpreted to mean, quote, herein lies the golden ark of the covenant, end quote. The only evidence he offered was a sketch of the entrance, which of course is no evidence at all. And considering the fact that he could have reproduced the hieroglyph and named his Hebrew interpreter as corroboration and never did, it's pretty safe to dismiss this as a hoax. But in the 1980s, another American, Tom Crotzer, took Futterer's claims seriously and mounted a new expedition to Mount Nebo in Jordan. Unsurprisingly, Crotzer could not find the cave entrance described by Futterer, but on a nearby mountainside he claims to have discovered a ravine closed off with a tin metal sheet. According to Crotzer, his team penetrated this barrier and discovered a crypt beyond, in which lay a gold chest that perfectly matched the description of the Ark of the Covenant. Unbelievably, he states that he only took photos of it rather than bringing it back with him. Crotzer's claims, too, can be easily dismissed based on his general lack of credibility. He has devoted his life to finding artifacts that prove the historicity and literal truth of the Bible. And he further claims, without convincing evidence, to have discovered the stone on which Cain murdered Abel, the Tower of Babel, and Noah's Ark. Furthermore, he refused to make his photographs of the Ark of the Covenant, only circulating them among a select few of his supporters. Eventually, he made the mistake of showing them to Siegfried Horn, a Bible scholar who was a genuine archaeologist and antiquities expert and Horn promptly revealed that Crotzer's photos were of a brass-plated chest that appeared to have been manufactured in modern times using machine-cut materials, with a regular modern-day nail protruding visibly from it. In short, it was just another hoax. Now for a brief intermission. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. By contrasting both the experiences of contemporaries and the conclusions of historians, Grey History dives into the detail, 
and unpacks one of the most important and disputed events in human history, from a revolution based on hope and liberty to its descent into the infamous reign of terror. There's plenty to discuss and plenty of grey to explore. One can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So if you're looking for your next long-form, binge-worthy history podcast, one recommended by universities and loved by enthusiasts, then check out Grey History, The French Revolution today. Or simply search for The French Revolution. Now, back to the show. Many seekers after the lost Ark of the Covenant set their eyes farther afield than Israel. And there is some compelling reason to consider that the Ark was at some point in its history taken out of Israel. Some claims, however, are rather ludicrous. In my series on the lost tribes of Israel, I spoke of the failed excavations at the historic Hill of Tara in Ireland by Anglo-Israelists or British Israelites who rather foolishly believed the Ark of the Covenant had been buried there and would prove that the British were descended from the lost tribes. In fact, they only damaged a historical site and found nothing, proving only that they were destructive and wrong. Other theorists point to the Knights Templar, a Christian military order organized to protect pilgrims to the Holy Land during the Crusades in 1119. I've spoken about the Templars before in a patron-exclusive episode back in February 2020 called Philip the Unfair and His Unholy War. In short, the Templars grew extremely wealthy over the nearly 200 years of their existence, and the French king Philip the Fair conspired to steal their wealth by making dubious claims about Templars being sodomite Satanists. In 1307, they were arrested some of them burned alive, and their wealth seized by the crown. In that exclusive minisode, I refuted the notion that the Templars secretly survived in the Freemasons, but there are countless other conspiracy claims about the Templars, such as that they discovered the New World before Columbus, and that they removed the temple treasure and brought it to Europe. This last claim derives from the fact that they made their headquarters at the Temple Mount, As the Brotherhood became extremely wealthy, legend had it that they had dug up the treasure some believed was or is still buried beneath the Dome of the Rock. In fact, Templar wealth derived from the many donations made to the Order across all Christendom, as well as the vast trade network they established. But rumor breeds myth, and today there is no shortage of conspiracists who will tell you with unfeigned certainty that the Templars brought back and hid away such mystical treasures as the Spear of Destiny, about which I spoke in my series on Nazi occultism, the Holy Grail, about which I spoke in my episode on the secret of Rennes-le-Chateau and Abbe Saunier's riches, and which I intend to explore further in our adventures into Indiana Jones lore. And finally, the Ark of the Covenant. Common is the speculation that the Ark may have been hidden in the south of France by the Templars, or even farther afield. One claim has it that the Templars carried it to the New World and buried it on Oak Island. And that's a whole other rabbit hole that some patrons have actually requested I excavate. 
I do intend to dig into that morass of pseudo-history eventually, but for now suffice it to say that there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever that the Templars found the Ark of the Covenant or stashed it anywhere. In fact, logic would dictate that if they had discovered it, they would have announced it to the world as a symbol that God was on their side of the conflict, just as they certainly would not have kept secret the discovery of Christian relics as important as the Holy Grail or the Spear of Destiny. And now we come to the seemingly more credible, but in reality just as unreliable claims of Graham Hancock, who in his 1992 tome, The Sign and the Seal, also traces the paths of the Knights Templar and engages in speculation about their carrying of the Ark of the Covenant out of Jerusalem, though he focuses more on Africa. Several listeners have asked when I will be devoting an episode exclusively to refuting Graham Hancock's claims, especially since his Netflix series premiered. The thing is, the idea that Hancock resurrects in his pseudo-historical, pseudo-archaeological Netflix series, which I won't amplify by naming it, are old racist ideas that I already refuted in detail in my episode on the myth of a lost mound builder race. Likely, I will refute Hancock again whenever I get around to producing a series about Atlantis, which he has written a lot about. And in the meantime, I'll just talk here about his Ark claims, which, like his other claims, are not original. He is not an archaeologist, and actual experts recognize him for what he is, a journalist engaged in popular writing. So to argue that he is a conspiracist or a fringe lunatic would be unfair. He writes lucidly about a lot of real scholarship, and in some ways he is an effective science communicator in that he makes very complicated and esoteric academic material digestible and accessible to wider audiences. The problem is that he is not as concerned as a real academic about credibility and truth. His are elaborate stories that err on the side of entertainment rather than fact, and as such, he tends toward the fantastical rather than the accurate, and in the process, he resurrects and propagates sometimes harmful narratives like the racist idea that Native Americans could not have constructed the American earthworks. In the case of the Ark of the Covenant, he finds himself part of a rich tradition that suggests the Ark of the Covenant was carried out of Jerusalem and into Africa, and not necessarily by the Templars. Indeed, this path was even suggested in canonical scriptures, as the Book of Kings speaks of an Egyptian king named Shishak assaulting Jerusalem and carrying away, quote, the treasures of the house of the Lord, end quote. Indeed, this verse is referred to in the film Raiders of the Lost Ark and is the reason its story is largely set in Egypt. Although it made for a ripping yarn in the first Indiana Jones film, there is no evidence that the Ark of the Covenant was ever brought to Egypt. And in fact, the verse in Kings mentions only vague treasures. However, one mysterious document, the Tractate of the Temple Vessels, 
does appear to lend some credibility to the claims that the Ark and the temple treasures were brought to Arabia by priests hoping to hide their most sacred object before the Babylonian invasion. It must be acknowledged, though, that the origins of the tractate are extremely suspicious. It did not appear until the Middle Ages, the 10th century CE, to be more specific, and thus in all likelihood is a medieval fantasy. Graham Hancock favors the notion that the Ark of the Covenant was carried out of Jerusalem a hundred years before the coming of the Babylonians to protect it from a sacrilegious king, Manasseh, the 14th king of Judah. According to one of the several theories Hancock entertains, these priests would have carried it to the Egyptian island of Elephantine, where a replica of the temple had been constructed. This too is pure conjecture though, and even if it were true, Second Chronicles records that Josiah, the 16th king of Judah, restored the temple and specifically ordered that, quote, the sacred ark, end quote, be put into it, indicating that if it had been taken to Elephantine during Manasseh's reign, it would only have been as a brief sojourn and was back in Jerusalem before the Babylonian invasion. There is the further possibility that priests may have brought it to the temple replica on Elephantine again or for the first time ahead of the coming of the Babylonians. But as one of my sources, The Lost Ark of the Covenant by Tudor Parfit, points out, the record that provides us with the most information about the ancient goings-on at Elephantine, the papyri discovered in the 19th century by American journalist Charles Edwin Wilbur, makes no mention of the arrival of the Ark of the Covenant. And as Parfit, I think, wisely points out, if the temple there had ever held such a relic, it would have been something they bragged about rather than hid. Such is the case with temples and churches generally. They tend to make a big deal about possessing miraculous objects in order to draw more visitors to them and thereby collect more money. So despite what raiders may have led us to believe, all claims about the Ark of the Covenant residing in Egypt suffer for lack of evidence. Finally, because it is such a fun story despite reliability problems, Graham Hancock falls back on an age-old belief that the Ark had perhaps been stolen from ancient Israel long before the Babylonian sacking of the temple, or even before the reign of Manasseh or the invasion of the Egyptian king Shishak. By this telling, King Solomon the Wise, who built the first temple to house the Ark, lost it to a thief who carried it to Ethiopia, where it has resided ever since. But it's far more interesting than only that. So the tale goes, when the Queen of Sheba visited Solomon to partake of his wisdom, she lay with him and returned to her homeland, Ethiopia, according to their national legend, pregnant with his son, whom she named Menelik. Menelik returned years later to meet his father, and in a show of alliance, Solomon sent the sons of members of his court back with Menelik in an effort to recreate the wisdom and greatness of Israel in Ethiopia, known as Abyssinia at the time. However, one of these young men, disgruntled at being sent away, stole the ark and took it with him. Since the ark did not destroy the thief or the rest of the party, 
it was believed that God willed for the relic to reside thenceforth in Ethiopia. And the claim is that ever since, as kings of a Solomonic dynasty reigned, and even as foreign invasions and modern revolutions changed the political landscape, the Ark of the Covenant has remained in the Church of Our Lady Mary of Zion at Aksum, protected by a virgin priest who is the only person alive who is allowed to see it. This narrative is supported by their national epic, the Kebra Nagast, or The Glory of Kings, which purports to be an account of a dialogue at the First Council of Nicaea that then shares what is ostensibly a far older tradition from more ancient sources. To be very clear, Graham Hancock's work, The Sign and the Seal, is not a work of historical scholarship, but insofar as he supports the story of the Ark being in Ethiopia, it must be acknowledged that this is not a new tradition, and it is one that many faithful in the Ethiopian Orthodox Tewahedo Church believe in to this day. A detailed exploration of the evidence refuting this myth is far beyond the scope of this episode, but if you are interested in researching it for yourself, I recommend reading Stuart Munro Hayes' The Quest for the Ark of the Covenant, The True History of the Tablets of Moses. Or if you're looking for something a bit easier to digest, listen to the Our Fake History podcast's two-part episode, Does Ethiopia Have the Ark of the Covenant? Suffice it to say here that historians and scholars mostly find that, first, there is no evidence that the Queen of Sheba ever existed except as a literary character. Second, despite claims that the Kebra Nagast's contents are a retelling of ancient traditions, there is no evidence that the work or the legends about Menelik and the Ark existed prior to the Middle Ages. And third, the story appears most likely to be a medieval fiction fabricated as propaganda to legitimize the divine right of Ethiopian kings and enhance the glories of the Ethiopian church. Even if we were to credit the claims of Graham Hancock and the Ethiopian church, even by their own legend, the relic they revere as the Ark sounds less like the Ark itself and more like the stone tablets of the law the Ark was said to contain, or rather, their replacement, since Moses broke the originals and had to get God to remake them. Indeed, every church in Ethiopia possesses such tablets, or tabots, claiming they are replicas of the real ones that, of course, no one is allowed to see. And in their long history, they too tell of times when their priests took their ark out of its holy of holies and hid it somewhere else in order to protect it from invaders, making it further questionable whether whatever it is they actually have now is what they claim it was long ago and whether whatever they had then may now also be lost. Further complicating the matter is the fact that they are not the only African people to claim to be descended from Hebrews or Jews. There are the Beta Israel and the Kemant, also in Ethiopia. There are the Lemba of Zimbabwe and the Nyambo of Tanzania and the Igbo of Nigeria and the Ibro of Somalia. 
some of these groups have genetic evidence to support their claims of having been descended from Middle Eastern Semitic peoples, and more than one has their own tradition about carrying the Ark into Africa long ago. Add to this further legends from Arabic texts that claim the Ark ended up in Mecca after Arabs defeated the Israelites in battle, and that it was thereafter sealed in some cave somewhere in the Arabian desert, and we come to a dizzying conclusion that the Ark, if it ever existed, and if it survived the ravages of time, could be secreted almost anywhere, under the most hotly contested holy site on Earth, buried somewhere in modern-day Israel or Jordan, in some ancient Egyptian catacomb, or in some church anywhere from Ethiopia to the south of France. Rather than lead us to take any such claims more seriously, this preponderance of competing claims should cause us to view all of them more skeptically. Instead of driving anyone to take on a costly expedition that would in all likelihood end in failure and could very well disturb what fragile peace we may have in the world, it seems rather that it should be enough to convince us that, whether it's ancient history or ancient myth, it's certainly nothing to chase after now. Thanks for listening to Historical Blindness. Once again, please support the podcast by taking the short listener questionnaire at surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave or click on the link in the episode notes and you can get 60% off HelloFresh and free shipping by going to hellofresh.com slash historical 60 and using the code historical 60 those links are in the show notes check out the blog post for this episode which should go up on historicalblindness.com sometime before the next episode for a transcript related imagery and further reading as always, thanks go out to my partner patrons, Diane Lane, Joe Escott, Sean Munger, Devlin Hoff, Michael Markham, Jessica Reeves, Fred from Colorado, Robin Nagat, Matteo M. Impey, Rebecca, Don Mundus, Eunice Allen Bradley, Juliet O'Connor, Jonathan Williams, Joshua Ludington, Logan Houlihan, Lily Powers, Lonnie Coffer, Ralph Fenn, Ava Michelle, Lee Holland, Christine Gundlach, and Kevin Osborne. To quote Raiders again, I consider you my top men and women and people. I'd take you on a quest with me anytime. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows, like the Ancient World and the History of Egypt podcast. The wannabe Indiana Jones-style music used in this episode is called Adventure Theme by Adam Monroe and was licensed commercially through Pond5. Some music on this episode is licensed through Blue Dot Sessions. Additional music from Kai Engel, licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. Check out the show notes for a list of the tracks used. You can support the show by pledging on Patreon or on PayPal. Find those links in the show notes or find me on Venmo at Historical Blindness. Until next time, remember, when it comes to legendary magical artifacts, it's far more likely that if they ever existed, 
They weren't magical, and they have likely been destroyed by people or the elements, and in fact are not filed away somewhere among endless crates in a top-secret warehouse. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.